0: We just say, for God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Can somebody say amen? Amen. We believe that this morning, right, man? Yes. And because we believe that, we understand that we're forgiven and we're pardoned, but we're also encouraged and compelled not to live any longer for ourselves, but to live for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So what we have this weekend is an opportunity for us to think deeply about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be helped to consider what does it look like for us to live for him in every area of our life and we get to do that by listening to the word of God through a dear brother, Pastor Harry Walls and I just want to give you a little bit of insight, personal insight from my perspective and I'm sure he'll share a little bit more with you about who he is but Pastor Harry Walls is a man who has influenced my life for the good, for the glory of Christ. Uh, Pastor Harry Walls, if you've been through the Men's Training Center or are in the midst of Men's Training Center, is a man who influenced me in thinking through that and preparing for that. Uh, This is the only speaker that we've invited back to address the men of this church again, and and the reason why is because uh, he's a blessing. He's a blessing to have him open up the Word of God and instruct us and encourage us. That's what he's going to do this weekend. He is uh, the vice president of student life at the Masters University. He's a professor at the Masters Seminary. He is a pastor elder at Grace Community Church. He's a husband. He's a father. But most importantly, he's a Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and loves helping men follow Christ more deeply, more consistently, with more intentionality. And so I would encourage you to buy in this weekend. This is what he told me. If we buy in this weekend, your lives are going to be transformed. Amen. So buy in, brothers, and please welcome Pastor Harry Wolves. Well, good morning,
1: Redeemed South Bay. Good morning. Hey, thank you for the greeting back. It's always a bit dicey at the beginning, <laughs> and uh, I bring you greetings from Grace Community Church, where I serve, and Dr. MacArthur yesterday and uh, he's doing better and he knows where I am and he's glad I'm here. I do teach week to week when I'm in town at Grace, a fellowship group called Cornerstone. um, And greetings from the university. Um, We're uh, just one of those unique spaces um, and becoming more unique, unfortunately, because you need truth-based and truth-governed institutions to equip and educate young men and women to fulfill the purpose for which they've been created. And uh, there's a proverb I like to quote in Proverbs 23, 23. It's Solomon to his son. It's the king to his people. And the uh, context of it is this is what's essential to prosper. This is the emphatic yes. And he says, buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom, get instruction, get understanding. Buying the truth is acquiring something at cost. Truth is the revelation of what is. It's not what you think it is. 74% of the people who walk the planet today think the truth is what works. If it works, it's true. Or it's my truth. It becomes the truth when I validate it as the truth. Even among evangelicals, quote unquote, 80 plus percent of young people today do not believe the truth becomes the truth until they affirm it to be the truth. And uh, what we have the benefit of with the revelation of God's word is the revelation of reality. Truth, by definition, is reality. It is what is. Not what you think it is. It is what is. And it must be, if it's true, accurate. It cannot deviate from reality. And God has given us his son, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the incarnate truth. And he has provided by his spirit written truth, inspired, authoritative, inerrant, transformational, the word of God. This is how you know what is. And that's why we're going to be investigating the word of God this weekend, because we need calibrated. I was telling Kendall, you know, I, I have plenty to do, and I have the privilege of teaching the Bible often. Um, and I'm here this weekend because I love men's groups. I love the opportunity to talk to men, the brothers, in an effort to calibrate, realign. Because you're in a world that is drawing you away and attempting to recondition your thinking or adjust your thinking. And you hear it over and over. You, you ask yourself, how did our culture get to such a space and place where a guy can be a girl and a girl can be a guy just because they feel that way. That's, that's just an amazing reality in our culture, that that's even so. Um, that men can biological men can compete against biological women and take the trophy and the prize, and more than not, that's accepted. How can that be? That's the drumbeat of the culture. Mm-hmm. The power of influence that is shaping our thinking. And what we used to blush at and maybe repulse by and react to, it's kinda normal in our culture. And this weekend is meant to recalibrate, resensitize, align your thinking convictionally. Uh, I tell the young people I teach at the university, you have seeds of conviction sown in you, typically by parents, Certainly by churches, but they aren't your convictions until they're your convictions. Until you're in a place and space where you have to level up and say, this is what I believe. I know why I believe it, and I'm going to live it, no matter what the uh, pressures are or the influences are. So my goal is to establish some convictions, and I'm going to offer you three of them this weekend. We have three times together Obviously I get the privilege of kind of selecting what I want to talk about and I want to talk about maximizing your life and the convictions that will make that true. You're built for the glory of God. You were made for him. Yeah. Isaiah 43:7, I formed you, God talking. I formed you, I made you for my glory. Yeah. Yeah. I you exist so people see me through you. Yeah. That's why you're alive. So the things that we want to talk about involve living for the glory of God and maximizing the purpose for which he created you. And I love your church name, Redeemed, and the purpose for which he bought you. He redeemed you at his cost, at high expense. He purchased and ransomed you from the prison house of sin for himself. A people for his own possession. You belong to God. You're to be the domicile of God on the earth. You're to live so people see him. And let me tell you something, that is the best way to live your life. Everything else is temporary. Don't care how much you own, how many places you go, how many books you write, how many people know your name. You're on the planet to fulfill the purpose God built you for. You have huge potential, not because you're a human being, but because the God who made you as a human being has the capacity to maximize your life. There's a verse in Acts, Acts 13, 36, and it's it's just, it can escape you. It talks about David, and it said when he fulfilled his purpose in his generation, he slept with his fathers. He's buried, he died. And I'd like to tell you at the very beginning, David is not the only guy with a purpose in his generation. You have a purpose in this generation. You're a difference maker, unless you don't make a difference. Lest you waste the opportunity that is uniquely yours as a redeemed, created by God, and steward of supernatural assets. If you're a Christian, you have supernatural assets. You have natural assets, talents, capacities, but you have supernatural assets. Spiritual endowments, talents entrusted to you, capacities given to you to advance the king and the kingdom. You have huge potential. And I want to capitalize on that. I'm going to give you three things this weekend. I want you to join me in 2 Chronicles chapter 9. And this first installment about maximizing your life really begins with a call to don't waste your life. If I was going to give a title to this installment biblically, it's the tragedy of a wasted life matter of fact, the way I would like to say it, it's a crying shame. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened in your high school, but my high school, there was a yearbook, and there was a category, different categories, most athletic, most likely to succeed, the funniest. There are different categories, and the student body, or somebody in the student body, in the senior class, Mm -hmm. would decide who the most likely to succeed, the funniest, most athletic, They assigned that, and would show up in the Most likely to succeed my senior class, I went to a public high school in southern New Jersey. His name was Ken Carter. Ken Carter was most likely to succeed. He graduated number one in our high school class of 13 or 1400. And uh, Ken was seen by his student peers as somebody with high potential. And from a human vantage point, we had a 20th reunion, which I had the privilege of attending. And uh, at that 20th reunion, and Ken and I grew up together. We went to the same sending public uh, middle school. So I knew Kenny as a a seventh grader and an eighth grader. Then we went to high school together. Didn't hang out a lot. I played sports. He didn't. Um, But he ended up going to Johns Hopkins. And he ended up becoming a medical doctor. And he became very influential in terms of his profession and career. And uh, you could say, well, most likely succeed to succeed, succeeded. And I don't know if you had that in your school. And I don't know if those persons who were identified as likely to fulfill great potential realize that potential. Because there are a number of people with great potential who don't realize it. Athletes are about to have the draft today the NFL draft. And there's going to be some quarterbacks taken in the first round, and some of them are going to be a bust. Somebody's going to spend a lot of money. Somebody's going to trade away a lot of assets in order to have Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud, or you pick the quarterback you know. And some of them are going to succeed, but most of them will not succeed. And the force of this time in God's word is someone who should have succeeded, who forfeited potential, unrivaled potential. And I'm going to argue this is you. You're in a biblically uh, oriented, grounded church. You're hearing the word of God. If you're a Christian, you've been restored and re- redeemed. You have the spirit of God. You have the power of God available to you. You have the truth of God in front of you. you got a lot of potential. And I don't want you to waste it. And I want to talk about a guy who did. And an effort to do that is not to discourage you, but to challenge you. Because two things I always do in these settings. I want to encourage you, and I want to challenge you. Because I want you to calibrate, not because Harry said it, but because of the revelation of God, which says you need to know it. And everything in your Bible is purposed. And this is purposed for our benefit today. All right, right, Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 13, talking about Solomon. Now I'm just going to set this context up. You tell me who you think or how you think this is going to play out. Verse 13, a reference to Solomon. Now the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. I don't use talents to measure anything, (laughs) 25 tons annually. Besides that which the traders and merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon, and King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of beaten gold on each large shield. And he made three hundred shields of beaten gold using three hundred shekels of gold on each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon, one of his palaces. Moreover, verse 17, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne and a footstool in gold attached to the throne and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. So we're at the top of the food chain when it comes to political power and wealth. Verse 20 And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. You know why? Because there was so much gold. For the king had ships which went to Tarshish with the servants of Huram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So think wealth and wisdom. Think Bezos, Bill Gates, wealth. And then multiply. And they brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the, kings, with the king in Jerusalem. And he was the ruler over all the kings from the Euphrates River near Baghdad, even to the land of the Philistines, that's all the way to the Mediterranean, and as far as the border of Egypt, that's south. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are on the lowland. They're bringing horses, verse 28, for Solomon from Egypt and from all the countries. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, from the first to the last, are they not written in the record of Nathan the prophet And in the prophecy of Ahijah, the Shilohite, and the visions of Iddo, the seer, concerning Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And Solomon reigned 40 years in Jerusalem over all Israel. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his. All right, guys. If you're a prognosticator, you're forecasting, this guy's going to be amazingly successful in the NFL. He can run, he can throw. You're looking at assets. You're looking at potential. What kind of asset potential are you going to assign to the king named last in this chapter? The son of Solomon, Rehoboam. Most likely to succeed? Well, he's the son of the wealthiest and the wisest. Kings from everywhere, the Queen of Sheba came to see if the kind of the the legend or the rumors she had heard about his unequaled wealth and wisdom were up to the standard of that representation. Solomon had a favorite son. His name was Rehoboam. I want you to consider the possibility of his potential father, Solomon, wealthy and wise. Grandfather, David, giant killer, God seeker, Philistine, defeater, songwriter, God chosen, anointed king. Contagious, courageous leader, the man after God's own heart, that's grandpa. When uh, Rehoboam received his name, and you may or may not know this, but it was common for parents to give their children's names that were reflective of some reality, um, could reflect some characteristic of their situation when they were born, Could uh, be like, uh, give you an example, Esau was called hairy, not hairy, hairy. He had lots of hair uh, on his skin, born with a lot of it. Edom, his name means red. Korah, his name means bald. Zerubbabel, born in Babylon, names meant something. They had associations. Rehoboam's name means enlarger of the people. Listen, a name could be given by a mother, but it was always affirmed by a father. That's why when John the Baptist was born, his name will be called John. They waited until his father could speak. Yes, his name will be John. The name of Rehoboam, approved by his father, maybe even given by Solomon, represents hope in larger of the people. Whatever the kingdom is at the time of Solomon, my hope is that Rehoboam will make it bigger and better. It would be like LeBron James naming his son Kobe Jordan James. (laughs) Whatever I am, he's going to be better than I am. Solomon, whatever I am, I'm going to name my son as someone whose my hope is he'll be bigger, but he'll enlarge. He'll make it better. He'll make it bigger. He's the enlarger of the people. And the heritage that he was born into was when Israel was enjoying unrivaled wealth. So you talk about the economy. It's not just what his dad had. It's what the people had. I just want you to listen to some of the highlights. This is 1 Kings 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating, they were drinking, they were rejoicing. This is inspired revelation about how it was when Solomon was ruling. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute. Listen, this this includes this statement. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. That's 90 gallons of flour for one day. 180 gallons of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. He had dominion over everything west of the river, over all the kings of west of the river. He had peace on all sides. So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Listen to this. Every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, from the farthest north to the southern Border, everybody enjoyed fabulous blessing. It's the golden era. So you got a wealthy dad, you have an expectation, a hope from the father. He's going to be bigger and better. You've got the influence of the wisest, the wealthiest. Solomon was David's favorite son. He has every reason by way of possibility you'd put beside his name unlimited potential. Is that fair? If you grew up the way he grew up, you'd have to say, man, this guy's gonna kill him. He's 6'5, he runs a 40 and 4'4. He's got hands like glue. You guys, some of you in here are athletic, but these illustrations resonate at all. That's Rehoboam. I'm talking potential. And I'm calling this a crying shame because I want you to go to the end of the story. I'm not talking about possibility. I want to talk about reality. This is chapter 12. So we're going to jump ahead. So Solomon passes off the scene. Rehoboam becomes king. And there's some highlights we're going to look at in his storyline to try to Mine some perspective out of this passage, but I want to go to the end of the book, really the end of his biography, to look at what would be on his tombstone etched by God. Verse 13, chapter 12. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem, and he reigned. And Rehoboam was... 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord, Yahweh, had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nema, the Ammonitess. Now watch these four words. This is the epitaph. This is inspired reality. And he did evil. The reality, which is God's commentary, really three weighty and unchangeable words, he did evil, was the summary of potential, forfeited potential. No, he wasn't as evil as Rahab, or Ahab, I mean, selfish, greedy Ahab, or as wicked as Manasseh, who made everything an idol. The issue wasn't he was as evil as he could have been, but he was not as righteous as he should have been. And if you looked at 1 Kings 14, and 20, through 24, which is the parallel passage and historical record of this, it says not only did he do evil, but Judah did evil with him. So let me just punctuate so it's abundantly clear. All of the potential resulted in this reality. He did did evil with that potential. And not only did he do evil with that potential, he influenced others to do evil. Now, gentlemen, your life, and I'm going to talk about this the next time we're together, has influence. So whatever you do with what you have certainly will be commentated by God one way or the other. There's only two things on the tombstone. He did evil, or he did right in the sight of God. There's a life summary sentence. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, or he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. It will be accurate, it will be infallible, it will be unchangeable and irreversible. Look, we're big on eulogies. I've done, I don't know how many funerals. I've never had anybody stand up at a funeral and say, this guy's a scoundrel. People find a way to find something good to say. Because typically, everybody has something good to highlight. Eulogio means to speak well of, eulogy. But God's not big on eulogies. Because Rehoboam wasn't a total bust. But the end commentary on his life wasn't he did right and he tried. He did evil. I'm going to call this one of the greatest tragedies in the Bible of wasted opportunity. This is a crying shame. His life and his commentary is etched in eternal stone. And I want to ask the question, what happened? consider some of the probabilities. What would have happened to this guy? And I'm argue what could have happened is, well, his father compromised. You guys know the story of Solomon, yes? Solomon did what God said he shouldn't do. 1 Kings 11. Solomon loved many foreign women this is verse 1. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hettite women. He was an equal opportunity women chaser. <laughs> Listen to this. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel. This is God talking to all the Israelites. This is the king who leads the Israelites. You shall not associate with them nor shall they associate with you, referring to the nations, for they will surely turn your heart away from God to their gods. And Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, that's women for pleasure, and and his wives turned his heart away. And it came about that when Solomon was old, the wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. I'll tell you what you could argue. My dad, I'm I'm going to act like I'm Bone. I would have fulfilled my potential if my dad hadn't compromised. My problem is my father's example. And you're going to hear that from people. They're going to look to a parent and say, the reason I am the way I am as it relates to God is because they were the way they were, really. And that would be a fair statement. Or maybe it was his idolatrous mother. I don't know if you caught it in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 at the end of verse 13. His mother, her name was Nema the Ammonites. Nema the Ammonites. The Ammonites had a god they called Milcom or Molech. Common to worship Molech. No God but the idol was to offer your children in sacrifice to Moses. That's why God called it the detestable God. It's unconscionable. You could take a child and burn it as a worship offering. And yet that's her people group. That's where she came from. Maybe he could say, listen, my mom was an idolater. She was interested in everything else but God. And the reason I forfeited my potential was not just my compromising father, but my idolatrous mother. Or maybe you could say, you know, the reason I forfeited my capacity, what really messed me up? I grew up in a house of compromise or idolatry, but maybe it was those foolish friends that I hung out with. Look over at chapter 10. So Rehoboam becomes king, and I don't have time to read it all. I want to highlight things, but if you know anything about this story, Rehoboam comes to the throne, and the northern tribes, ten of them, the the tribes of Israel, have a representative, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam comes, appointed by the northern tribes, to appeal to Rehoboam, lower the expectation The requirement on us of your father to extract value in labor from us. You're working us too hard. And that was what the appeal was. Verse 3, chapter 10. They sent and summoned him and Jeroboam and all Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. So apparently Solomon's riches and all of the kind of accomplishments were generated in part by a kind of forced labor and tribute even from his own people. And so they're appealing for relief. New king, son, ease up. And so Rehoboam, verse 5, seeks counsel. He says to them, return to me in three days, this appealing group. Come back in three days. In essence, I'm going to think about it. And verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive. So I'm going to talk to my dad's council, elders, saying, how do you counsel me to answer the people? And they spoke to him saying, verse 7, if you will be king to this people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. So that's the counsel the old guys gave. Counselors to the wise man, Solomon younger son Esau. shepherd these people lead these people love these people careful verse 8 he forsook the counsel of the elders which he had given him and which they had given him and consulted with the young men watch this verse 8 who grew up with him and served him so these are his boyhood buddies. And he said to them, what counsel do you give that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Verse 10. And the young men who grew up with him, boyhood buddies, spoke to him, saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, your father made our yoke heavy and you make it lighter for us. Thus you shall say to them. Now watch this. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. I'm a much bigger man. My little finger is bigger than my dad's manhood. You know what that is? Disrespectful, rude, and crude. The boyhood buddies were crude buddies. They were disrespectful. They spoke in ways that were rude and dishonorable. They were the kind of advisors who had no maturity. Look at what they say. You tell them, I'm a bigger man than my dad was. And then you say to them, verse 13, Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. So disrespectful, crude, and rude. Harsh and heartless. Calloused, vulgar, and violent. Now listen, gentlemen, don't miss this. He that walks with the wise will be wise. The companion of fools will be destroyed. You could say that the reason Rehoboam was such a bust. He had a compromising father. Had an idolatrous mother, bad influence, and he had friends who were worthless, vulgar, heartless, harsh, violent, disrespectful, full of pride. Listen, Proverbs eighteen six says, "A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows." Fools will, Proverbs thirteen twenty. They will suffer harm. Listen, foolish friends feel foolish. He that walketh with the wise will be wise. Boneheaded buddies are bad for your potential. Some of you, and I want to say this right now, some of the most important decisions you will make have to do with who will you do life with. Friends you will choose, influences you will have. But the heart of the problem is not the idolatrous mother, the compromising father, or the foolish friends. And by the way, he took the advice of the foolish friends, and the kingdom of God was divided just as God had predicted. So he said, I'm gonna double down. The people said that you're not our king. So the ten northern tribes, united under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, they rebelled and they resisted, and the kingdom was divided, divided. Judah and Benjamin, southern kingdom, ten northern tribes, and for the next series of cycles of kings and generations, there was nothing but endless war between those two groups. So I want to go from the probabilities and the possibilities to what I'm going to call the certainty. And I want you to go back, and maybe you already saw it, back to the epitaph, verse 14. Because we get benefit, not just from the declaration of his wasted life potential, but why. And gentlemen, the force of this first session with you is meant to calibrate you with a conviction that if Rehoboam did evil for this reason, forfeiting great potential, so will you, and so will I. And it's simple. It's inspired. It's helpful, and it's convicting. Verse 14 And he did evil. Now, watch the words. I highlighted my Bible. If you look at my Bible, it's got color. And in this, I've highlighted in bright yellow because. And I've underlined, he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Period. The problem with Rehoboam wasn't his mom, wasn't his dad, wasn't his friends. The problem with Rehoboam was not some external condition. It was an inward condition. It was not about smart. It was about his heart. It was not about wealth. It was about his heart health. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And if you want to maximize your life, and this is the big takeaway, the conviction is you have to be a God seeker from your heart. It's not passive. A couple of words here that are really important. First of all, the word seek. The Hebrew word means to inquire, to consult, to pursue. It's to pursue intentionally. It means to seek relationship, connection. It was seeking for direction. It was seeking out of passion. It was a proactive pursuit for a connection with God. Set his heart to seek the Lord. I'm going to pursue God. I'm not passive. I'm not waiting for God or somebody to pursue me. I get up in the morning. Job one. I'm seeking the Lord. I'm going to pursue him. For what? Connection. Relationship. Communication. We don't have time to look at all the verses. I'm giving you the punctuated headings. Relational connection. Life direction. Inspiration. Provision. It is a seeking God. Let me give you one more kind of quote here. One of the most frequent uses of the word is the expression to inquire of God. And it indicates a private seeking of God in prayer for direction. And it often refers to connecting with the people of God or the instruments of God for biblical revelation. Mm -hmm. So you're going to put yourself, and I'm just going to capitalize on this in places like this, where guys gather for the purpose of seeking. I'm seeking God for direction from God for a greater connection to God, for inspiration and passion, for provision. I need what I don't have. Rehoboam's failure is he did not, here's another key word, set his heart to do that. Now the, the word for set, is the Hebrew word kun, it's used 220 times. There's a lot of ways and places, contextually you can look at how this word Kind of plays itself and colors itself out, but let me give you the two big ideas. Setting your heart involves two things. Number one, it involves putting yourself in a position to seek God. It, it you could, the word preparation. You put yourself in the space. You prepare. In an order to connect. You put yourself in a position to seek the Lord. I've been married 41 years this June, so I'm a month away. Celebrated 40 last year. I was a uh, senior at Liberty University where I finished college. I went to Brown to play football and I transferred to Liberty when God called me to preach. And I taught a Bible study at Brown. Some of my football teammates came to faith in Christ and I was a pre-med major studying chemistry And I can remember the day, spring day, my sophomore year, sitting at my desk in the fraternity. And I'm looking at my organic chemistry textbook. I'm looking at my Bible in the upper right-hand corner. Never wanted to do what I do. Never one time growing up did I want to be the guy that does what I'm doing today. I respected preachers. I just didn't have any interest in being one. I wanted to be a medical doctor. I'm a pilot, and I had my license early on and growing up, and I thought, I'll be a missionary pilot. I want to serve God, and I'll be a missionary doctor pilot. You know, it's kind of like I want to be a fireman. You kind of got that dream going. Yeah. And I remember sitting at my desk at Brown and looking at my textbook, looking at my Bible, and I, God just ministered to my heart. I don't want to study organic chemistry or any other kind of science for life. If you're a doctor, you're a life student, Right. At least you want your doctor to be a lifesteader. <laughs> so I left Brown the end of my sophomore year, didn't come back to my, play my junior year at Brown. I transferred to Liberty. It's the only place I knew, frankly, that would teach me the Bible. My best friend went there on a wrestling scholarship. My senior year at Liberty, because I had the last two years at Liberty before I went to seminary, and uh, I was the RA for the football team and the basketball team, the baseball. And I'm walking out of my dorm up to the circle, the loop at Liberty, where people jog at night. And there was this girl. And she was jogging. Now, let me tell you, I played three sports in high school, played college football. I'm not a jogger. (laughs) That whole idea of running just to run, never (laughs) interested. You know, I would run to prepare for the sport. But if you weren't chasing a ball or chasing something, running just to run, I don't relate to that. I became a jogger. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I I got some running shoes, because she would jog regularly, so I became a jogger. You know what I was doing? Putting myself in a position to connect. And long story made short, obviously I connected. Dated her for two years have been married to her for 41 years and with her married to her for 41 years this June 43 years ago I became a jogger to connect relationally with a person I wanted to get to know now I tell you that illustration not just to make you smile because you may have done the same thing and by the way once I caught her I stopped jogging
0: <laughs> I don't jog
1: anywhere <laughs> You get that too, right? You understand that. I was a purpose-driven jogger. (laughs) I want to use that personal illustration that we can relate to. Setting your heart for a connection with God is putting yourself in a position where such a connection can occur. It's pursuing proactively. I want you to look at a highlight during the reign of Rehoboam chapter 11 and you, you should read this there's three chapters here that really put it all together and, and I wish we could walk all the way through it but we're going to jump in what, what happened Jeroboam the northern tribes because they didn't have access to Jerusalem and the worship of the living God because to come to Jerusalem would be to support Rehoboam they weren't coming to Jerusalem to support Rehoboam the priests, the Levites, the worship place, or the king. They set up, Jeroboam did, his own worship space. He anointed his own priests. He established his own idolatrous worship. In other words, competition for the true God worship. And the true worshipers of God did what any true worshiper of God would do. They said, we're not hanging out here. And I want you to see what the... Scriptures say, as it relates to this, verse 13, chapter 11. Moreover, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel, that's the northern kingdom, stood with him from all their districts. That's a reference to Rehoboam. They're standing with Rehoboam. For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property And came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. And he, this is a reference to Jeroboam, verse 15, set up priest of his own for the high places, for the satyrs, that's idols, for the calves which he had made. Those are crafted worship idols. So Jeroboam set up his own religious system. And everybody that was assigned by God, Levites, they were the servants of the house of God, the priests who were the agents of ministry to God on behalf of the people. Priest is a go-between, the people and God, God to the people. He excluded them. Look at verse 16. And those from all the tribes of Israel, watch this, who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel, followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their. Now, think about it. A God-seeker seeks the spaces and places with the people who worship God so that they can connect with God. The reason Rehoboam fumbled the ball and forfeited his potential, the reason he did evil, is because he did not consistently put himself in position to connect with God through the means God had given priest, worship, sacrifice, temple, in our case, and in his case, those who knew the word of God and promoted it. Now, there's a second nuance to the word set. It's not just put yourself in a position to connect. It's once you get into that position, you stay there. It's a position and a resolution. It's a conviction. I'm not moving. He did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord because he didn't put himself in a position and he didn't stay in that position. Look at verse 17 of chapter 11. And they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Watch this. For three years, for they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Now, why do you think it says that? Because he reigned 17 years and he stopped following after three years.
0: Hmm.
1: Look at verse chapter 12, verse 1. And it took place when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong that he and all Israel with him, watch this, forsook the law of of the Lord. The problem with Rehoboam was not only did he put not put himself in a position to connect with God. He didn't stay in the position to connect with God. 2 Chronicles 11:17 he was a part-time piety person. 3 years. He was sometime submission this is Second Chronicles eleven one through five because there was a battle that was taking place. Rehoboam was not happy with the rebellion, so he sent his force north to attack those who had rebelled. And the Prophet of God, verse two, chapter eleven, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah the man of God, saying, "Speak to Rehoboam the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house, to, to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin." Verse four, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. So God's talking. To whom? Rehoboam, through the prophet of God, God's spokesman. Look at the end of verse four. So they listened to the words of the Lord and they returned from going against Jeroboam. All right, and I just want to highlight that verse because somewhere along the line, Rehoboam was a submitter to God. God talks, I obey. He says don't, I don't. He says do, and I do. He's a submitter, but what you're going to see is he was a sometime submitter. He was a part-time follower. He was some of the time humble. Listen, gentlemen, God-seekers have not only a commitment to pursue, they have a commitment to stay as a pursuer. You know, one of the challenges that I have is fitness. And I am consistently challenged, and I'm going to argue because of my DNA, that I can eat a little and gain a lot. <laughs> I'm a waltz. And you're looking at the smallest male walls ever. And I'm not small. Food. And look, if there's a famine in the land, I'm going to survive. <laughs> it takes very little to sustain me. And what I notice is this kind of a pattern of, I'm committed to fitness. I was with the dean of men yesterday. We went out to lunch and did some stuff together, and he said, "Uh, how's your fitness? I said, not good. I've been out of the gym for, that gym's a block and a half from my house. (laughs) I've been in the gym in two months. And I'm eating whatever you put in front of me. And this is not a beat up on Harry session. This is basically to tell you that it's one thing to say I need to be fit and I'm committed to good diet and exercise and staying in that conviction and commitment. And sometimes as a Christian, you come to places like this and the spirit of God works through the word of God. And there's a vivid example in front of you today. Rehoboam is not the exception. He's the rule. You do evil unless you set your heart to seek the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that is a consistent, ongoing, everyday pursuit. The most important thing about your future is defined by what you pursue today. God is a person who has revealed himself in his word And a relationship with God requires daily pursuit in the word of God. The average Christian reads the Bible 10 minutes a week max. You're not going to get home that way. Seek the Lord first. Look, what I like about Rehoboam, he talked to the elders. What I don't like about Rehoboam is he talked to the elders before he talked to God. Seek God first. Inquire of the Lord in prayer before you seek leadership from the guys that God has entrusted as your shepherds. They're entrusted to represent God, but they are not God. (laughs) Seek God first. Seek the elders and set the boyhood buddies aside. (laughs) Seek God for your satisfaction. I I just want to highlight this because this is a men's retreat. I want you to look at verse 12 or verse 18 rather of chapter 11. Sought the Lord for three years. Verse 18. Then Rehoboam took as a wife, Mahalath the daughter of Jeremoth the son of David and of Abigail, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse, and she bore him sons, three of them. Verse 20, and after he took Makah, so that's not Mahalath, this is Makah, the daughter of Absalom, and she bore him four sons. Verse 21, Rehoboam loved Makah, the daughter of Absalom, more than all his other wives, see the S plural, and his concubines, for he had taken eighteen wives and sixty concubines, and fathered twenty-eight sons and sixty daughters. Can, can I just suggest to you that part of failing to seek the Lord is you seek the Lord first and foremost for your satisfaction, not through this endless pursuit of sensual or sexual or human relational gratification. I mean, you look at this guy, and and I wrote it in my notes. He, He sought wisdom from men, not God. Number two, he did not seek the Lord through his elders. He did not seek the Lord through his word, and he did not seek the Lord primarily for his satisfaction. He had 18 wives, 60 concubines. Concubine was a mistress. Listen, there's one of the statements that Jesus made in John chapter 4. He said, my food, my satisfaction, my meat is to do do the will of him who sent me. I don't remember, but I do think I taught you Proverbs 7 the last time. And Proverbs chapter 7 says and begins by teaching us all that the solution to moral immorality immorality the solution to immorality the temptation of the flesh begins with feasting on the word of God my son if you keep my words within you if you treasure it like the apple of your eye if if you treat it like a brother or a sister or an intimate companion if you put it in front of you In other words, if the Bible is your soul food, they will keep you from the foreigner and the adulteress who flatters with her words. Why? Because the word of God is soul food. And soul food, I desire your word more than my necessary food, Job said. If you don't find satisfaction in your relationship with God, there's no amount of women that will satisfy you. Not the one you're married to, or the ones that will tempt you, or the images that prompt you. Satisfaction is from the fountainhead who says, I am the water of life. Remember when he said that, John 4, woman at the well? If you knew what kind of water, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask for me, living water. Five husbands, living with a guy, not her husband. In other words, she's she's seeking satisfaction in one relationship after another. And he's basically saying that in there, you know it's not there, it's right here. The reason Rhea Bowen fumbled the ball is because he was not resolved to seek his satisfaction in the He was not resolved to seek satisfaction with the people of God through the word of God. He was not resolved to submit to Yahweh when Yahweh talked. Gentlemen, this is authoritative. I live in America. I am an independent thinker. I am a free person. I can make choices so I can choose or not choose. Freedom is something we value. We don't live in a sovereign, under a sovereign king in our culture. But as a Christian, you live under a sovereign king. He's the Lord. And to as many as receive or welcome him as the Lord, to them he gives the power, the authority to be sons of God, even to those who believe on his name, John 1.12. There is no Christianity without lordship, because if you say, I'm a Christian, and you act as if Jesus isn't the Lord of everything, you don't welcome him. There's no negotiation. When God speaks, the answer, and if you're in the military, it is, sir, yes, sir, And the beauty of God speaking is he really cares about you. He really wants your best. Every denial is to protect you and every requirement is to promote life for you. He did evil. Not because he had a bad dad. Or a compromising mother, an idolatrous mother or because he hang out, hung out with foolish friends. He did evil because something wasn't convinced here. And gentlemen, my heartbeat for you is that you will set your heart to seek the Lord. So my first message calibrator for you is, you want to maximize your life? You maximize it by seeking. Seeking is a present tense pursuit. It's today. It's today, Saturday. You're seeking him today. You're seeking him tomorrow. Of course, it's the Lord's day. But what about Monday? I tell my staff, the most important, the most important installment that you have to offer anybody is the consequence of loving God by seeking God first and alone. That's the truth. You can seek it with the brothers, and you should. But you ought to seek God one-on-one. That's why Jesus would escape the crowd to go to the wilderness, undistracted fellowship with the Father. You need daily bread from heaven. Nourishment from the Scripture. You need leadership and direction. My wife lives under the conviction that I would like to spend time with her. Not with a group of people, but with her. She cherishes time alone with her husband. Guess who else cherishes time alone with you? Your father. Take time daily for God alone. And stay in a position of consistency. Don't look like a a roller coaster of commitment, spasms of conviction. To get fit, you know, too many of us live like it's January one. We're going to make those con- those resolutions, and most of them are gone in two weeks to three. We all relate to that. We even smile as if that's a good thing. The reason we smile is because we all relate to that. And as a Christian, the distinguishing mark. That define or the distinguishing discipline that defines and the conviction that will define the fruit of your life is whether you will commit your heart to seeking the Lord today and every day. Can you say amen to that? There's no secret way home without that. And you won't be a crying shame. You'll be an uncommon person with a claim that says, I live for God. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I promise you, there'll be people who do right because you were an agent of influence in their life. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know the big story of the Bible. God created you for good and for his glory. Man was damaged by evil and by choice. Third chapter of Genesis. God called it all good, and then it wasn't good. Damaged by evil and by choice. Ruined everything. But God so loved the world, he sent his son, God the son, God, very God, to rescue and restore, to redeem. So Jesus leaves heaven, becomes a man, because he's going to have to substitute for sinful men, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ, God, becomes man. Exchanges glory for humanity, becomes obedient unto death, the death of the cross. Jesus became the atoning sacrifice, the perfect substitute. He purchased what hell cannot secure. Listen, you don't get out of hell. Nobody ever serves the sentence. Sin is so egregious, and justice is so furious. You do not get out of eternal torment, blackness, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's not unfair. That's justice. What's really not reasonable is the God who we have sinned against provided a substitute who lived the life we couldn't live and didn't live and then became sin for us and Jesus, the ransomer, said it is finished. The three hours of darkness, powerful, furious, perfect justice on the scapegoat. And he did that for you. If you know Christ, he did that for you. And when he said it is finished, it's paid in full. And you get a righteousness that's impeccable. He exchanges your unrighteousness for his perfect righteousness, called justification you become perfectly righteous. You're going to stand before the most righteous judge and there's not going to be fault found in you because you are robed in a righteousness, not your own. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know what that is? Redeemed. Mm -hmm. South Bay. And you know what the king of everything does for everyone who receives that gift? Can't earn it. Who places their faith and trust in the one who came to rescue and redeem? Missions you. He sends you out into the fallen world of broken people to rescue and to restore. You're the EMT. You're the person who God has commissioned in your space to bring glory to him and help to them. Mm-hmm. And you know where it starts? Setting your heart to seek. Because knowing him allows you to walk like him and have an influence for him. Can you say amen one more time? Amen. I'm glad you came to the retreat. And I hope that calibrates your heart. I look at this guy and it sobers me. Father thank you for the time and thank you for the word of God and it's work thank you for the power of truth and Lord it's my prayer for these men that they will as the scriptures exhort them they'll be steadfast and movable they'll get in the space and they'll stay in the space they'll prepare their heart and, they're, and that they would be faithful Lord that's my prayer And I pray at the end that what's written on the epitaph of our life or on the cover of the book that represents the pages of our conduct, that it would say he did right. And he influenced others to do right because he set his heart to seek the Lord. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for the man whose heart is rightly related to you that you might show yourself strong on his behalf. May we be recipients of such strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.